DC Public Library podcast is made possible in part by the Institute of Museum and Library Services and is a production of the labs at DC Public Library. You're listening to DC Public Library podcast, recorded from the lab's recording studio in the historic, modernized Martin Luther King Jr. Memorial Library in downtown Washington, DC. This is All Things Local, and I'm your host for today, Maggie Gilmore. Today, as part of Jazz Appreciation Month, we're talking about activism and how the DC Music Stakeholder Coalition has worked to secure funding for musicians and venues, while also advocating for the continued presence of live music in our nation's capital. We're joined by Chris Naum of Listen Local First, Herb Scott and Aaron Myers of the Capitol Hill Jazz Foundation, and Jamie Sandell and Luke Stewart of Capitol Box. Hi, everybody. Hi. 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 Thank you all for being here today. Amidst your busy schedules in the virtual environment, um, first I'd like to introduce the context of each of your organizations. Um, you know, Chris, why don't you start by telling us about Listen Local First? Uh, how did you get started? What are the goals of the organization? What What is Listen Local First and what do you do in DC? Uh, yes, thanks. Uh, thanks so much for having uh, me. So Listen Local First is a local music initiative. Uh, that's really all it is. It was a way, it was started out as a way to find new ways for fans to connect with awesome local artists and find new ways for artists to connect with new fans. And it's all about building partnerships within the community and creating new opportunities for, for creating new opportunities for artists and creatives. Um, that means a lot of advocacy, event production, uh, some educational work, but it's been it's been a very involved hobby of mine for <laughs> for the past ten years now, and really exciting. Every year, um, I'm wanting to get rid of my day to day nine to five work and do this full time. And hopefully, I'm getting to the point where I can do that. I mean, through our advocacy effort, we have seen so many people get involved this past year, and that's been really special. And obviously, this year we haven't had events, but like before the pandemic, you know we were really hitting a stride in sort of getting putting together events that focused you know highlighted the music community focused on musicians and was drawing a lot of attention from the local community so um we hope to get back to that and we hope to continue the work we're doing in advocacy working with these fine people on the call yeah you've done some great events for dc you know the library has enjoyed participating in some of them like the funk parade etc um, we certainly look forward to some of that coming back to our street. And um, Herb and Aaron, talk to us about Capitol Hill Jazz Foundation. Um, I kind of have this image of you guys operating out of Mr. Henry's, but I know that it spans far beyond just that space. What do you all do? Um. Yes, well, thank you. The, the Capitol Hill Jazz Foundation exists largely. Um, uh, it serves mainly in two major capacities, and that is to um, to hire musicians and to advocate on behalf of musicians. Those really primarily constitute the majority of our activities. Um, <clears throat> uh, Aaron and I began working together upon the closure of um, Bohemian Caverns, um, restaurant and jazz club on U Street. Um, we were already operating the jam session, but when that club closed, um, it was a, devastate, a devastation to the entire jazz community. And we noticed that a, a number of clubs were closing and our advocacy efforts really centered on preventing um, clubs from closing and how to preserve the clubs that are, that are currently still in operation and also to uh, promote and um, uh, and support uh, new venues um, that would be looking to open. And the, those efforts resulted um, uh, in the passage and the adoption of a bill that was the um, Performing Arts Promotion Amendment Act of uh, 2019, 
um, that actually during the pandemic was a bill that we could reference for venues to benefit from. Um, and that bill essentially called for, uh, allowed for a property tax rebate of up to $15,000 for small music venues that operate uh, with a capacity of 250 seats or less with at least 48 hours of live music programming per month. Um, and so um, outside of our advocacy efforts, we have uh, our weekly jazz jam session at Mr. Henry's has been our mainstay. Um, it has been maintained throughout the pandemic with a weekly Wednesday night hour long live stream. Um, and, uh, and outside of that, we have the Capitol Hill Jazz Festival, uh, Hill Fest, <clears throat> which would happen every October. We had to postpone it last year, but this year we're looking to host that festival. Um, and so Aaron and I have been working on, uh, since we are a very small organization, our um, capacity is very much stretched, stretched, stretched as we both are also full-time musicians. So he, uh, he has been very, very, very helpful in leading and guiding us with the advocacy efforts. And I have been working on budgets and grants <laughs> and um, organizing our April Jazz Appreciation Month events. Um, and I'll let Aaron tell you more about the other half of what's going on. Well, I think, I think her covered a lot of that. <clears throat> we um, started with the, uh, the DC Jazz Lobby to really kind of focus on exactly what the disconnect between the scene and actual, not only government support, but uh, understanding the infrastructure and where we really set up in a sense to, to thrive just from a structural standpoint. And uh, when we looked at what already existed in Washington, Herb wanted to create a, a nonprofit that would not try to recreate the wheel in a sense, um, which I felt was very important. There was no need to be DC Jazz Festival. There was no need to be uh, WJAI. There was no need to be those things. Those things existed already. Where where was there a gap of void? And we looked to look, be in that void and see what we could do there where the work had not been done. But most of all, we understood the work we were going to do uh, would impact really just the, the scene of music overall, not just not just jazz. And um, which has been the, this is how jazz has operated since its entirety. We've always influenced other genres and helped other genres and this, that, and the third, and uh, just by existing and doing what we do. And so um, that's what we decided to do. Look, to, we, we were able to create the uh, Congressional Jazz Caucus uh, in Congress uh, and have uh, the jazz legislation reintroduced uh, both in the last Congress and in this Congress already. Uh, so we, we've been able to do that. We've been able to help uh, the Congressional Black Caucus with their uh, yearly jazz um, concert that goes down, which would have stopped two or three years ago without our help and assistance. So we, we tried to really uh, step in in ways where we, we knew that it would be meaningful, but um, I think the DMV music stakeholder would probably be the, the biggest uh, as, as of late and the most concerted effort over the, the last year. And I think that Herb covered a lot of what we do. Yeah, and you're really reaching into this national stage, um, I think, in a different way. Um, will you, would you give us a little background on the HR 57, the House resolution back in the 80s, really, right, that declared jazz as a national treasure? Um, are you kind of trying to reintroduce that idea in Congress? And do you yes. work on some of the same... It had been reintroduced. Uh, we got uh, last Congress, it was uh, 4626, which means it came in toward the end of the congressional period. Uh, Herb can give me the number now. I'm fogging on it, but it's the it, it was introduced earlier. What is it, Herb? HR 139. There we go. So we it was one of the first bills introduced this Congress. And uh, the importance of this is that uh, Herb and I went through the legislation. Um, we understand uh, the... The last year, last Congress, we realized that uh, the the legislation really set 
under two committees in a sense, the Appropriations Committee and the Education Committee. And so we needed to understand how we could see a lot of what John Conyers introduced in the 80s could actually be realized in reality now. And so uh, this, before we the introduction of this last uh, iteration, Herb and I went through and looked at spaces for inclusion, looked for spaces where things could be more concrete. We sent then our recommendation, uh, recommendations to the member. Uh, by the time we got the recommendations to her, uh, she, she must have introduced this legislation, reintroduced it the first day Congress opened uh, because we literally got her the information like day two, day three, and they said, she already introduced, but we're in a position now where we can have this legislation really uh, moved into the 21st uh, century. Uh, now we have to realize when John Conyers had introduced this, it, this was off the heels of uh, what he had been successful with, with the Martin Luther King Day. And so uh, he had introduced that, I think in the 70s or the 80s, but it became in fruition in the 80s in a sense. So the idea was that this would be able to have that same spirit, that same thing go, go, go down, I guess you could say, but he didn't get the support uh, within the uh, Bush administration or the Clinton administration. And he didn't reintroduce it. He only reintroduced it that one time, H.R. 57. And so what we're looking to do is actually to have this legislation with teeth so that we can actually examine how jazz programs across the country are done, how education is provided, um, not just education for jazz, but music education, uh, the resources that the schools, whether you are a charter school or a primary school, how, what resources do you have to have access to the education? Are we looking at how we're addressing education online, uh, the virtual access that people have, things of that nature, which is really important. And then the sharing of archiving, not just making the Smithsonian here in Washington, D.C., the space, the only space that can archive uh, spaces, but they would be able to uh, coordinate with local libraries and places and local spaces where they could do some sharing of artifacts and then the collection of jazz stories, uh, which is very important because we saw leaders, I think what Luke and um, um, Jamie have done uh, just in the, over the last weekend uh, with the uh, death of, uh, Aaron, of Aaron uh, Martin, I think that's a that's a very important thing to, to have some type of record of the influence of these people. And so I think that's uh, something that we hope the national legislation uh, can do. What we, before the pandemic started, Herb and I had met with the cultural, the French cultural attache of France in New York. And we were trying to bring the basic income that musicians and artists receive in Europe and in France, that concept as a pilot program here to Washington, D.C., we see that San Francisco has just done that with the $1,000 basic income that they're doing as a pilot program. Now, uh, we had looked at something, I think about double that here in Washington. However, um, had the pandemic not started, though, uh, musicians would not have been recognized as a uh, insurable um, insurable profession, which means they would not be eligible for unemployment insurance. Now, mm -hmm. Herb and I had worked and we had seen how the Department of Labor had finally recognized uh, musicianship as a um, apprenticeable uh, uh, profession. But in that scenario, the apprentice usually would make more than what the musician would make. Uh, and we were trying to rectify that. Now that we are uh, this, uh, being a musician, you can get some type of unemployment insurance uh, if you are not uh, in work, we now are able to dovetail both of those things together and then push for that basic income, uh, which is something that must happen. We must move up with the rest of the developed world where America shows that it puts its money toward what it values, which is its culture and the influence that music and musicianship plays upon the national culture. And, jazz, and the United States uses jazz specifically to go and work with other countries as an ambassador uh, situation. I just did a you know 20 city tour in Russia because of this same situation. Hmm. So I think that what we've done from a national standpoint, we've really tried to use DC, which is very unique as the model of what could happen nationally. And as that echo chamber, as that pilot situation that could exactly. uh, really influence what happens in the rest of the country. Yeah. And we're going to talk more about unemployment and guaranteed basic income uh, for musicians and artists later in the podcast. Um, let's get back to Capital Bop. And, you know, speaking of closing venues, um, as Aaron and Herb pointed out, 
you know, Capitol Hill Foundation really generated after the closing of Bohemian Caverns. Um, Capitol Bop has just released a series of mini documentaries about closed uh, jazz venues that have closed this year with your Jazz and Freedom Festival, which we are going to talk about more. Um, but tell us about Capital Bop and how you all got started. Um, I, I know Capital Bop really adds to these stories and really the canon of, of journalism around jazz, but that's one of the, the focuses. Um, tell us more how, how this all works. Yeah, thanks for having us on this discussion. Um, already a very rich discussion. So Capital Bob <clears throat> kind of started, one of the main emphasis of Capital Bob starting was the fact that uh, there wasn't enough light being shed on the local jazz community in Washington, D.C. Um, at the time, back um, you know over 10, over 10 years ago now. Um, we we were noticing how, first of all, the the local uh, jazz community in Washington D.C. was sort of a hotbed of a lot of really amazing activity, really high level uh, playing, just within sort of the the so-called jazz world, um, and also a very unique <coughs> um, situation within the. Uh, so-called modern jazz world in terms of the way people uh, learn how to play the music in terms of the way the community uh, interacts with each other. There's a lot of interplay between, at the time there was a lot of interplay and uh, intersection between elders and uh, younger musicians, um, you know, elders who had, had been in, and bands with, you know, the greats in, in the music from, you know, Jimmy Smith to, you know, uh, Hugh Masekela and so on and so forth. Washington, D.C.'s legacy within uh, the music, within jazz, is, is very powerful and very deep <clears throat> and arguably one of the deepest in the country um, in terms of just the historical nature of the development of uh, of jazz coming from the black community it's a it's a, an example that uh, that really led to the developments of uh, of what we know and celebrate as jazz coming out of New York City. Obviously, we talk about how Duke Ellington um, came from here. You know, uh, Jelly Roll Morton had a had a club here in Washington D.C. <clears throat> um, the Harlem Renaissance, so to speak, uh, is arguably started here in Washington D.C. before those people moved to Harlem. And so, these sorts of and, and then obviously the coming into the the modern context, there there was again just a hotbed of activity, a lot of clubs that were around that weren't just, you know, Bohemian Caverns and Blues Alley. There was, you know, Cafe Nima, uh, you know, Utopia and, you know, dozens of other um, places where people had regular sessions, HR 57, obviously. And <clears throat> so it, it was, it was a, a real fertile period that oddly enough, wasn't to, to our, to Geo and I's, uh, observation it wasn't being uh promoted enough it wasn't being uh it wasn't made aware to the public enough it seemed mm -hmm. especially myself as a musician uh you know straddling multiple communities in dc i i witnessed how segregated it was in in terms of musicians not even who, who aren't playing jazz are either not interested in jazz at all or and or are not aware of this amazing and important history uh vital history <clears throat> that washington dc uh is endowed with the uh and and the legacy that 
continues within DC. So that was the that was one of the the main emphases of the the organization was to first let people know about just really how much jazz was going on. There was an online calendar at the time um, that that people were using, but we we found a way to 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 firstly start an, another. I guess more interactive, more easy to use, um, more visually pleasing calendar that was also coupled with uh, with articles, with journalistic articles about people in the scene in um, in, in particular, live reviews, um, artist profiles, interviews with different musicians coming through town, um, and really just show trying to show and highlight that uh, that DC is indeed a jazz town and and has such a deep legacy within black culture and black music in jazz that uh, that should be more well known mm-hmm. uh, in in DC and as well as uh, in the world yeah. And yeah. And I'll just, I think Luke said it so well. And I'll, I'll I, I think I, I'll emphasize that, you know, we sometimes self-describe or are described as a jazz advocacy organization, um, you know, but that term kind of sometimes has some interesting baggage to it. You know, it really, it, it, it sometimes speaks to these, you know, large like nonprofit corporations, um, you know, kind of removed big performance halls, you know, frankly, you know, these large, you know, white led and backed organizations, you know, culture vulturing off of this like vibrant populist scene. Um, and I think that, um, you know, uh, the, the, the kind of motto that a lot of the time we, we fall back on about what we do, like practically, like in a very basic way is that we promote, present and preserve the music in DC. Um, and, and basically what that means is, is, is just, you can just look back to, to, what Gio and Luke were doing, um, you know, in 2010, it was, it was a, you know, young musician organizer uh, across multiple scenes. Luke really has this a huge breadth of, of the scenes that he moves in and is respected in. And then a young journalist, an inspiring journalist and writer um, who, who, be, you know, believed in that journalistic philosophy of living in the scene that you write about, you know, not being removed, but being part. Um, and, that kind of led to the projects that came to be Capital Bop's, you know, work essentially was this kind of hand in hand doing advocacy in the form of journalistic coverage and multimedia, creating videos, creating pieces, creating interviews, getting musicians to write about other musicians, you know, involving them in in their own self-documentation. And then also presenting and being a player in, you know, bringing the music to spaces that it wouldn't normally be in. So, you know, uh, back in the day, Luke's old studio at, um, at uh, Goldleaf Studios, Red Door um, was called, and then later Union Arts, these kind of amazing, like, bastions of, like, musician-organized music and musician-run music, um, where creative cross-pollination was just, like, the way that it happened. Um, you know, uh, and then, and so, you know, it's, it's all this kind of, it's this kind of integrated thing. It really has to be music by the community for the community in order to, for it to kind of, you know, do justice to that. And really, and really only pretty recently have we really kind of started to dip our toe into augmenting, you know, musician led efforts at public advocacy, like Chris and Aaron are doing, you know, we've always very much been off the beaten trail underground. And that's kind of where we are at most at home, I think in a lot of ways, but sometimes like moments like this, um, you know, uh, you got to kind of explore every avenue and, and, public engagement, like civic engagement is, I think, one piece of that. Yeah, and it's clear that you have so much content now to draw upon as you are doing this advocacy work um, and the benefits to having the community involved themselves in the generation of that content, like you mentioned, um, you know, musicians seeing their work uh, really being amplified uh, perhaps has led to this momentum that you all have generated um, 
that we're looking at now. So, you know, you're all filling these gaps. Listen Local First, Capitol Hill Jazz Foundation, Capitol Bop. Venues are closing. Um, you know, you mentioned Union Arts. I know there was a lot of public advocacy and protests around the closing of that facility. Um, when did the DC Music Stakeholder Coalition kind of come to be? I know it's been like an email list, you know, a way to just get the information out and get people to sign petitions, etc. Um, was it in, was it at the same time as that first noise ordinance legislation came out in 2018, the first uh, amendment, or was it before that, that sort of that group got started? It's far as what we look at the DMV music stakeholders uh, as of now, um, when the pandemic started, Herb and I were talking and uh, Herb was like, we've got to figure out a way where we can get all the the folks as far as in jazz, first of all, to kind of figure out what we're, what we're going to do. Um, something that Herb and I both had seen often is that DC has a track record of people running to their silos, becoming very insular and trying to figure it out uh, kind of like who's going to who's going to first get the electric light? Who's going to first invent it? We're going to instead of working together, and so uh, he and I, uh, he said, well, let's go, let's get together a call if possible, or let's do something so we can kind of get in touch with everybody. And he sent out that email to I think Sunny and to uh, Jamie and to a few other people, uh, and we uh, got on Zoom, and Zoom, of course, at that time was. We, musicians, we're not using Zoom. We weren't doing any of that foolishness at all. So uh, as we're doing now, in a sense. So what we uh, got on the call and we kind of figured out that, A, we needed to talk regularly. We needed to figure, because news was coming regularly, but nobody was talking to us. And the music and the music ecosystem, it was clear, was not a priority um, to... Uh, the the district government, at least, and especially not to the federal government. And we needed to have a way where we could share information. Now, I still have pretty solid connections like at NIH or like in Congress and things of that nature. And so I have uh, some relationships and friendships that could help get us some information as we needed it. Um, but I knew that we needed to be able to talk in a way where we could share some information. And so the, as far as the DMV, the DC, at first it was the DC music stakeholders, uh, you know, that's how that came about. But as far as the amplified noise situation uh, and how the group, as far as knowing that we had to really lead in advocacy before that, Chris called me, uh, I was at the radio station and said that uh, either Camone or someone had said, told him that um, they, they were getting ready to, you know, basically find people and possibly put them in jail for playing outside on the street and that kind of thing. And there was a hearing happening and none of us had been talked to or whatever. And uh, we found that offensive because in each one of our spaces, we had had interactions with people in district government, whereas the consideration piece, you know, understanding that DC has lacked the, the knowledge and the insight into, uh, to justly or to correctly legislate anything when it came to the arts. Yeah, so now let's, let's pause there actually, because let me remind our listeners of what this Amplified Noise Amendment Act was of 2018. It was emergency legislation, right? So they're trying to push it through fast. And it actually reads, um, it shall be unlawful for any person to make, operate, use, or play any electronically amplified sound in a public space that is plainly audible to an individual of normal hearing at a distance of 100 feet or more, measured vertically, horizontally, or diagonally from the sound source as measured from the public space or from inside a residential dwelling or commercial space. Mm. So 
even as a like relative lay person in this, I see there are there's clearly something wrong with this way that they're going to measure amplified noise. Um, well, I want to I want to just jump in. This is Chris from, from Listen Local first. First, that's uh, that's the original legislation. Yeah, this is twenty eighteen. Yeah, the 2018 legislation. The legislation has been amended and they've taken some steps to do away with that measurement scheme, which is great because right. that is impossible measurement. And I think that's what Aaron was, was speaking to is, you yeah. know, they just didn't really know the language that was important to qualify what this means, right? Well, I would say more than that. They, they decided to impose legislation that's going to have a large impact on a whole set of community without seeking any input from that community. Like you decide you're going to find a whole subsect of a community, but not bring that community to the table. They, they claimed that they had an open meeting and musicians could come and, uh, and, and, and talk at the meeting, but there was not publicized in any way. Um, you know, going back to the, going back to like the need for all this and the DMV music stakeholders, you know, I would actually say that, that while the pandemic formulated this group that we now have on zoom, like this, this started, you know, the idea of us advocating for music, one goes back to 2018, but as Luke was saying, I think you can find the real beginning of this, uh, you know, happen around the union arts discussion, which I think was like 2016 or before, because mm -hmm. that was the first time you saw so many different activists, uh, you know, and advocates from the music community coming around to rally around a cause. So, so that's kind of where what Maggie, you were saying the email list kind of evolved from there. And then, you know, we had an email list and Aaron had an email list and, and, and that came together, you know, through, through a number of these issues where the impact on the music community was so negative, but, but no one in the planning part or in the legislation or in the building, you know, development era had any communication with the, the music community led us to formalize this group to create petitions to advocate to propose new legislation uh, because unless you speak with the unified voice that it's clear the city doesn't even city doesn't really comprehend like the size and scope and, and let alone economic impact of the music community in DC. Um, and it just takes a lot of work and a lot of education and you can't do that alone. You need to do that in coalition with a bunch of people. Right. And so successfully that 2018 amendment was tabled. Is that correct? So it was actually, it was withdrawn. The whole withdrawn. legislation okay. was, 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 and it's because the chairman had had the votes. Now, one thing you got to be able to do in all the politics and it's something that Herb and I have worked hard to realize you got to be able to count your votes. You got to be able to know who's with you and who's not with you. And you do not need to worry about those people who are not really with you if you got the votes, you know, and that's what one thing we, we tried to stick hard, uh, really hard with. Not only that, um, during that time, what we did show, which I feel is important, is that all of us, especially on this call, uh, displayed the ability to work with those who are creating policy. Um, there's been a false narrative created as if the music community and we here are, you can't talk to us. We can't reason, we're, we are bringing unreasonable uh, initiatives. Uh, something Herb and I realized earlier on is that DC government does not, is not aware of A, the issues, the problems that we are dealing with in our, the subset of our community uh, Chris often points out that they lump us in as far as music with a lot of other arts things when you, you, live music specifically and music in Washington has a very specific need, very specific problems, very specific issues, which require very specific solutions. And one thing we try to pride ourselves in is that we do not bring awareness to problems without solutions. So before we even approach people in government or people anywhere, um, the one of the things, the Music Venue Relief Act, we tried our best to do that as a public and private partnership at first. We identified over 40 or 50 private, uh, uh, private sector uh, industries or businesses who had an excess of $10 million or more. We reached out to them. We held the Zoom calls, you know, trying to entice them to raise the money. 
so that we would be able to approach the uh, federal, uh, the district government at least with solutions. Um, when I remember uh, with uh, Luke and them were going through the issue at uh, Union Arts, I mean, you're talking about the amount of research they compiled and they presented to the district government for option, viable options showing how a what they did was not legal and then being able to get the, uh, the community together so we could testify. I mean, there was a, there was a show of force and we, what we have realized and, and unfortunately what we've had to acknowledge is that you know, when we have a, a government that can allow teachers not to have instruments in school or have schools that, uh, that, that even have the option of music programs, if you don't find the priority of music there, you won't find the priority of music or the musicianship or the eco ecosystem when it comes to the professional, those who graduated school who are trying to make this a living. So we have tried to make it our, our, our mission, our source to not only advocate, but advocate with solutions, but not only advocate with solutions, find partners wherever we can, bring them forward, but then not to stop what we're doing. Mm -hmm. You know, we can't stop and wait on this, that, and the third to hopefully catch on. We have tried to actively still be working. And a lot of the efforts we've tried to do has taken two, three, four years to get accomplished. Um, but we recognize that some of the stuff, this, 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 these problems were not created overnight. So therefore mm -hmm. they won't be rectified overnight. Yeah. Also, let me add um, a little bit of, of, of context about the beginning. You know, I think, um, you know, the world of music and advocacy <clears throat> has, as, as Aaron was just saying, there, there are initiatives that may take a number of years um, and then you'll find yourself partnering up with other other groups. And so um, the beginning of the call, actually at the beginning of the pandemic <clears throat> at the shutdown, one of the reasons that I began the, the call to organize everyone was so that our efforts would be concerted in fundraising because I knew that there'd be a mass rush for arts organizations to fundraise uh, to give out um, to help musicians uh, while things were shut down. And I knew that it was going to take, that the shutdown was going to be much longer than a few weeks. Um, I'd actually just returned from um, Thailand and I was over there at a time. I was worried about the virus flying over there before it kind of really hit the news here. Uh, heavy in America. And so I was already kind of aware that, there, that we might be dealing with this for a while. And so my concern was that there would not be an overlap um, in uh, organizations fundraising at the same time. And maybe some musicians would may not get um, or receive uh, 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 support. Um, but that, that the other, another backstory to that group is that um, early in our um, advocacy, Aaron and I had been involved with the Smithsonian um, organization who had a Smithsonian, uh, who was working with a, a jazz coalition network. And so our work- Jazz hubs. The jazz hubs, right. There were four different cities in America uh, in which were identified as jazz hubs. And the whole point of those jazz hubs meetings was to essentially gather resources uh, of, of of the available resources in that given area. So kind of looking at a, um, a music census in a sense, uh, taking a real snapshot of all of the, the stakeholders uh, that were involved. And so that, that concept of stakeholders uh, was something that Aaron and I incorporated uh, in this new year and um, during, the, during 2020, because that was one of the first times um, that we had been invited to participate with uh, Duke Ellington, Levine School of Music, uh, Washington Performing Arts Society, all these huge DC Jazz Fest, all of these organizations in Washington, DC, who had never really met before. And so we had kind of carried that group and that list of with us as we continued our efforts um, locally, but also <clears throat> nationally. And so as the year kind of rolled out, one of the things that I was happy that we were able to do and continue to facilitate was that because of that call, we were able to organize those efforts for fundraising. And we were able to, as the Capitol Hill Jazz Foundation, uh, dispense two rounds of COVID relief uh, to benefit DC-based jazz musicians. Um, <clears throat> and then uh, it, in, in pairing with the, um, with the, the sound and then, and then the, the sound bill and noise bill, one of the other avenues of advocacy is, is uh, we've been working on 
is having conversations with <clears throat> um, uh, the, the the developers and the property managers at Gallery Place Metro, as well as at Eastern Market Metro, who actually I've had conversations with recently. The Gallery Place Metro people are looking at what's happening with the Eastern Market Metro um, um, organization um, development there as far as outdoor performances. And we work, all of us are working all in hand as a number of other um, organizations involved with the Capitol Hill bid, the downtown DC bid, and a few other um, uh, um, uh, invested parties, as well as the Department of Parks and Recs to kind of really to say, look, this, we're invested in the music being here. We don't want to lock up musicians. This We recognize that Don't Mute DC and the overwhelming support from the go-go community and people that are just sympathetic towards the arts that this is really not a solution. Maybe we need to figure out ways to designate spaces for artists rather than um, penalize them for that. And so this summer will be an um, interesting year. We're gonna, there's some pilot programs gonna be rolled out <clears throat> in those areas. Um, since we're continuing to figure out the mayor's reopen, the plans for reopening in venues and, and gathering, that sort of thing. Right, and actually I think we should mention this harmonious living bill might, now might be a better time to talk about it because um, you mentioned Chinatown and I know there's this new noise amendment act, um, which then brings the language back to, um, amends the language to electronically amplified noise exceeding 90 decimals, but it's in all residentially zoned areas. So this is now being proposed which is which is very so what, what one of the things that we realized and of course going back to coming back to now and jamie i'm going to let you jump in i want to make sure that history there's correct so uh, there was this notion about this arts overlay that would been there was a it was, was a it was a myth and the idea was that wherever there would be developed space there uh, a new developed space there's going to be a percentage that was going to be uh, dedicated to art or whatever. And it was such a strong discussion that it never made it into law. It was just kind of somewhat adopted by some people. And that usually was done when you see a lot of apartment buildings now that have like restaurants underneath. And they, well, you know, the restaurants, uh, when they did the creative, um, the creative community strategy, the creative, uh, uh, I heard you remember the name of that thing is where it showed, it showed that the creative uh, community basically was um, a governmental services, uh, restaurants, uh, IT, and then the creative arts was the smallest tier of those four. And so if you notice a lot of new buildings, you see restaurants on the bottom, or you see certain artwork that's on certain walls or prominent in certain new structures, well, that's them doing their overlay. That's not, that's not really in law. Uh, part of the reason that is, though, is because um, um, I think is the Phil Graham, uh, Jim Graham, who passed away, former uh, council member for Ward uh, One, whatever. He really fought against uh, the, the and helped keep and push a lot of the music. People don't realize a lot of the musicians and the music this out of uh, the U Street area and Ward Ward One areas, whatever, and really forced up those zone those that zoning situation where um, there's a different set of rules if you're going to be playing in a residential area versus if you're playing in a commercial area, this, that, and the other. Chris has always advocated that we need arts districts. Well, there are no art districts whatsoever in Washington, D.C. So you find yourself in these spaces where, for instance, where the MCI Center is, in a sense, where that is, where that's been built it was never designed to be a mixed use and a mix and a entertainment space ever to, to begin with. Mind you, you don't find uh, this type of thing happening in uh, certain places in Georgetown because they have a whole different set of rules and this, that, and the other for those particular areas. So mm -hmm. what they have decided to do is said, okay, well, if you're gonna be playing here, we want to really reinforce these particular rules for you if you're playing outside and if you have any type of music or noise as they called it, which we first fought against to begin with, uh, the noise situation. Um, so because of this, there's no, there is no recourse, there's no safe space, there's no, there's no language 
for us right. to go back to as a music community for to, to be saved, uh, to save us from this mixed use, the zoning situation, because zoning is very, um, zoning's out of our control. Right. And for the most part, uh, the city was never planned at it, as it is zoned to uh, facilitate what it already has, something like the Verizon Center. Yeah. Something so, like the Nationals National Park. Something right. like, it, um, those, so the National that, Park is new to development to set in there. So I'm sorry, go ahead, Jane. Yeah, no, but that that's what is in this harmonious living bill. Is that like a direct response um, to these noise amendments uh, and amplified noise issues? Like, well, it's the add to other leg. It's the other of the leg because we cannot solve the problem by blaming or uh, call, asking that the musicians themselves be the solution when they are not the problem. When you have a building that was built, that was built in a space that had art and culture already happening when it was being built, but it was not built to sound standards. It was not built with double pane windows. It was not built with reinforced, it was not built to keep the noise outside come, from coming inside. That is not the musician's fault. That is the developer. The developer has right. the, the resources and if with proper guidance can have the standards needed to ensure that any future thing that is built, that the, the life outside of that apartment, that condo, will not protrude inside the said condo because the structure is built. Um, um, it, it, it's built up to standard, up to code that the city has been enforced and has created. Um, right. I think so the harmonious living bill was just introduced this past month in March and it requires developers to include soundproofing on new buildings, right? It also, uh, allows for funding and tax breaks for retrofitting buildings that already exist. And then it supports curated outdoor performance spaces. Um, what does that mean? And, and how, does, how are we proposing that that takes effect and is implemented? Um, just, real quick, just real quick here. The, 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 third, the, the, the third part is it, it provides disclosure on leases, which is, which is, uh, which is important. So if you're moving into this place, disclose that this is an entertainment district. Fourth part is it sets up a survey to uh, analyze all the outdoor performance spaces in the for the reason of uh, eventually allocating resources toward these spaces, like creating, uh, uh, you know, creating domes or places for band shells and places for musicians to plug in to music and basically, uh, you know, uh, providing resources and giving resources to these spaces where musicians normally perform um, to make them more hospitable and also, you know, naturally having a band shell, you know, keeps sound going one direction. Let's let's encourage this, not and and, and build it up the right way. Um, so that's what the legislation proposes as a fourth part is allocating resources to outdoor performance spaces. Okay, uh, Jamie, do you want to add something? Yeah, I I, I, th I think I, I think I, I would like to 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 just provide some some context for you know a listener who uh, who um you know who who for whom this these are all these these baroque like legislative details like can be really intimidating and um you know as the as the junior organizer on on this call I think it's it's been very interesting for me to to witness how the stakeholders have come together in this way you know like it's it's evident you can see you know folks like the my my friends and my colleagues on this call like you know Luke has been doing you know musician driven driven organizing around like things like preserving DIY artist space you know Chris it has a legal background and has been very policy minded and has been you know, a very staunch advocate, you know, Herb and Aaron have this, um, have this, you know, this kind of master plan around, around working with both federal and local governments, you know, people, y'all are very, like, very, like, focused on this, and because of your, 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 your qualifications and your skill sets, and I think that's so crucial, and this kind of work has been happening for a very long time in the city. Um, 
I think what is exciting to me about the stakeholders, um, and I think we, we haven't maybe fully explained exactly what form it is in right now, but the stakeholders is a huge, loosely organized collection of people from across the music community here in the, in the district. It includes journalists, advocates, um, a lot of musicians, a lot of venue owners, um, and just other people running independent, independent um, initiatives having to do with supporting the arts in the district. And they all come together by availability whenever they can make it on one of two meetings every week on Mondays and Thursdays. Um, and everybody is able to serve the work and, and, and the causes that we are trying to fight for in whatever way they bring to the table. Um, and you don't have to be everything in coming to these calls. Sometimes the calls are simply used for sharing information, you know, people. And that was actually really one of the big purposes in the early parts of the pandemic is just, Hey, how are you doing? Like, what, it, what are your, what are your flaw points right now? Where, where are you crashing? Like who, what musicians are out there who are starving, like who really desperately need economic assistance, who are quietly suffering because, you know, our, our, our social safety net doesn't really do half the work it needs to, to cover independent artists, you know, that this sort of thing. It's, it's really um, something that's, that's so exciting that has seen a resurgence, I think in the pandemic in many different ways is uh, this idea of mutualism um, and mutual aid. You know um, uh, I work with a mutual aid network here in the district, you know, doing things like material aid and, and, you know, vaccine resources and things like that. And essentially we've created a form of, mutual aid in the DC community. Basically when, when an issue is raised by one of our stakeholders, we all take it into consideration and, and see what we can do to, to work on it. Um, and it, I, I don't know, it's a very, it's a very exciting organizing model before, because it means that lots of different people from across the, the spectrum, not just the most invested music advocates can be part of the solution can be part of the work um, and can organize in. And I think we might touch on this later, but, in a rapidly, you know, developing city where lobby and um, closed door meetings are so powerful, we're forming a, a, a block of collective organizing, um, you know, a, a block of collective organizing on our terms, not a corporation's terms, not a, you know, not a government's terms on our terms. Um, I don't know. I think, it, I think it has, it has a lot of potential to really bear out in the next decade, you know, if we, if we keep invested, if we keep on, keep it going. And, you know, I, I'm sorry, Maggie. What Luke and them did with uh, Union Arts when they were really in that fight, I think they it was that was one of the first times, at least to my knowledge, where you saw a younger group of artists who displayed to the district government that they would not be put away quietly nor if they were going to be moved out, that we would make sure that we would be on record and they would be on record with facts, with research, with information, and to show them exactly why they are making, and when I say they, I mean the district government was making the decision not to side and be on the right side of history, right? Mm -hmm. And what Luke and them were able to do then, I mean, you had a crew of us and they extended testifying before uh, um, commissions and uh, before the council and this, that, and the other uh, with facts, with something that was blatantly wrong that was happening, mm -hmm. that it seemed as if nobody uh, was coming on board who had power to speak up, to at least acknowledge uh, what was so blatantly written out in law that was wrong. And I do wish this stakeholders situation was around then, but I believe yeah. part of the iteration of what we have today is responsible because of seeing people who already had been be, began doing the work for trying to advocate for what was right and themselves then. Luke, you want to talk to Ed about any yeah. of that? Yeah, basic, basically what what, what we're talking about here is that the issues that are surrounding, you know, the, the, the stakeholders call that, that, that it essentially started um, 
at the beginning of the pandemic is tackling issues that have been at the heart of a lot of the problems in the DC artist community at large that's been going on for decades due to the, for one, the lack of awareness and the lack of um, investment from the local DC government and from the federal government. <clears throat> and obviously it has ties in with a lot of uh, political history within DC as well. You know, we can take it all the way back, you know, um, to the, the, the times when we were alluding to before um, in the, in the eras of the past where the, the music and the community were really developing. Um, and so one of the things that oddly enough was part of that, that fight uh, for union arts was the issue of noise and uh, sort of that perhaps not the term, but definitely the concept of harmonious living and support in general for the DC artist community, the musicians community in particular. And so one of the, the main issues was the fact that for musicians, it's difficult in DC, nearly impossible in DC to find a space that is conducive to a musician or a band or an ensemble, what have you, to have the, the vital access to honing their crafts, essentially making noise without worrying about getting a fine or being harassed by the police or being harassed by uh, neighbors in a, or, or that are essentially, you know, neighbors in a, in a, in a big corporate modeled uh, apartment building complex, something like this, essentially union arts. And I think the, the, uh, one of the, one of the reasons why it became such a powerful movement was because it was the last, the, the last of its kind in DC. And um, it, 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 it happened um, at a time when leading up to that, DC had always been a hotbed for independent musician-led DIY activity that was, that was potent to the rest of the world. DC gained its identity in a lot of ways through its DIY culture of all kinds. And so with Union Arts, we were experiencing the final nail in the coffin of that movement in, in, in so much as that way of the organic interaction of a community, of a musician's community, of an artist's community, in order to create this, uh, do the work of being an artist, just, uh, just in, a, in the barest sense, the work of being an artist had been shut down with the, the, uh, the closing and, uh, of Union Arts. And I think we can all agree that that is a, is a critical turning point in the history of independent music in Washington, D.C. We can, I, I think that, that we can track, you know, the, the proliferation of spaces that were, that were coming in and bubbling up and then ultimately, uh, you know, rapidly being shuttered, rapidly being uh, politically oppressed because the policies that were in place and that, that, are, that are constantly still being um, introduced are in place to destroy this kind of activity. Okay. Right. 
So we have to, I think the important context is that it's not just COVID. Right. That, that is, that, that's, that's the emphasis for this activity. We've been in this fight for a long time and the issues that have been uh, surfaced during COVID are really, you know, the, it, we're at the dire situation of that paradigm. You know, right. if, if, if it had happened, as, as Aaron was alluding to, if, if we had had the support, if we had had the, <clears throat> the, the, the community connection of the stakeholders, of a, of a proper stakeholders union or what have you, at that time, things that, that were that were really starting during that time. But if it had been stronger, if if the if in general the DC government had been doing what they were supposed to do, then we wouldn't be in such a dire situation right now to where we're looking at the possibility of there being, you know, little to no venues in right. uh independent venues in Washington, D.C. And then what does that, how does that play out in the community, in the, in the, the general artist community? Essentially, yeah. the, essentially, the communities that we know of, the communities that, 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 I, that, that I developed in 10 years ago is non-existent now. You know, like that's, that's, that's a sad truth. But then you see this advocacy that's just really uh, flourished over the past year. And this conversation has been very telling about how it really all was set up pre pandemic. And let's, let's focus on, you know, where it started and why, and not forget that narrative which I think you all are doing very well at, you know, that this isn't just about making sure that artists have, um, have, you know, an uh, income right now, but it's about the entire landscape of live music in the city. And I, you know, I had hoped that we would be able to talk about the reopen every venue safely and shuttered venue operator grants and how that, you know, directly affects the artist and the individual musician when the venues are getting support, what is the musician getting out of that? Um, but that's going to be for another podcast. Unfortunately, I think we could uh, talk a whole nother hour on some of the economic relief. Um, like I think Aaron had mentioned earlier, what, what France does for its musicians and artists, um, what San Francisco has just proposed or has put into effect for a basic income for musicians of a thousand dollars a month um you know i think it's very interesting uh these conversations about guaranteed minimum income for you know the entire population not just musicians and artists i think that's becoming a little bit more uh in the the public view since you know the last 40 or 50 years, I think. Um, this is something that MLK had dreamed for as well, obviously. Um, but for another day, we really have had an excellent conversation here. Um, how can people jump in on the, the uh, DMV Stakeholders Coalition? Can people sign up for email alerts? Can they join the Zoom calls? How does that work? Jamie, you wanna, so, well, I can, you can reach out to any one of us. Uh, the Zoom calls are open to the public. They happen every Monday and Thursday at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Uh, and if you uh, reach out to either anyone at the Capitol Jazz Foundation, heard myself, anyone at Capitol Bop or Listen Local First, uh, uh, there are plenty of emails there. Let, them know, let us know you wanna be uh, included on the in the group. Uh, uh, Google Groups will include you in. You get all the information. Not only do we uh, have the meetings, we record the meeting meetings via Zoom, and then we send out notes so everyone can have them in there in their emails as well. Great. And we're on social as well. So Capital Jazz Foundation, Listen Local First, Capital Bop. Um, we're all on socials. 
Capital Bop is spelled with an A, like the capital of the country, not the not with an O, like the Capitol building. Um, and Capital Bop, all one word for your YouTube station. And Jamie, tell us about what you can see on the YouTube uh, station, part of the Jazz and Freedom Festival. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I, I know we have to wrap, but but basically, you know, like Luke said, this is this is an existential issue, and we wanted to we wanted to kind of take another angle on reminding people why we care about this stuff and why what the beauty is in these spaces that are closing as a result of the pandemic, but more importantly, as a result of the way that DC is developing in the absence of you know a way for our advocacy to kind of get hold and avert the path um, that has been happening economically in the city. So we created a series of mini documentaries honoring spaces that we'd lost in 2020 um, called the Jazz and Freedom. It's an iteration of the Jazz and Freedom Festival, which is actually a long ongoing social justice and music festival that we do every year on, on, on or around um, MLK Day in January. Um, we were doing it in support of those venues' memories, interviewing you know people who meant a lot to them, as well as providing a, a kind of a musical tribute um, in the spirit of those venues. Um, we've kind of tried to make compelling, beautiful video um, part of our, our our mission to you know to show the world how amazing the music in the city is. So that's our latest chapter. But we have a bunch of other videos on YouTube and a bunch of other content at capitalbop.com. So we'd love for people to get involved and find out about the treasure that this, uh, this scene is. Great. Thank you so much. And I know Aaron, we can hear you on WPFW jazz and justice radio station weekly. Do you have a weekly show now? Every Thursday for jazz stories from 3 PM to 5 PM. So you can tune in at 89.3 FM. You can hear jazz stories. If you have any great news you want to talk to us about, let us know about it. If you have any new music you want to have played, hit me up and we will do our best to play it there for you. Excellent. Well, thank you all so much for joining me today. Um, again, we've had Chris now with Listen Local First. We've got Herb Scott and Aaron Myers of the Capitol Hill Jazz Foundation and Jamie Sandell and Luke Stewart with Capital Bop. As we close this conversation, we are going to leave you with music performed in the library's new auditorium here at 9th and G Northwest. It's a performance that was part of our opening series of events in September of 2020. This is a clip from Performance Lab, Improvised Works for Free Jazz Quartet, featuring Charles Ramat Shabazz Woods on reeds. Crow Meat, Bob Pence on reeds, Luke Stewart on bass, and Nick Francis on percussion. You can find the entire performance on bigmarker.com backslash DC dash public dash library, or search for Performance Lab on our website at dclibrary.org. This has been an episode of All Things Local on DC Public Library podcast, recorded from the lab's recording studio in the historic, modernized Martin Luther King Jr. Memorial Library in downtown Washington, DC. Thank you for joining us. Be well. You just tuned into DC Public Library podcast. Listen and subscribe at dcplpodcast.simplecast.com or wherever podcasts are available. Send us your comments at DCPL on Twitter or follow us at DC Public Library on Instagram and Facebook. Thank you for listening.